Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John 12, 44 through 48. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come in the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see each one of you. If I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you have gathered with us today. And as we prepare to look at this text that Kay has read for us, I'd love to pause and pray um, and ask that the Holy Spirit, the one that we believe who inspired these words, um, that the Spirit would meet us afresh in this moment and that uh, he would make our hearts good soil for the seed of his word to be planted this morning. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of it. Thank you that you've inspired it. And we pray that your spirit would be at work afresh right now in this room, making these words words of life to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the one who inspired these words today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, UK journalist Claire Thorpe opened a 2018 article with this paragraph. She writes, perhaps one of these scenarios feels familiar. Wasting an hour swiping through Tinder only to emerge with nothing but a tired thumb. Working your way through endless offerings on Netflix and Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO on demand, and eventually falling asleep after failing to watch anything. Uh, taking so long to decide on an Uber Eats order that by the time you actually land on a meal, you're too hungry to wait for it to arrive and make yourself a sandwich instead. And then she says this, while we have more choice than ever in our daily lives, but while that choice is supposed to make us feel liberated, it can also feel exhausting instead. She says, we have more choice in our daily lives, but while that choice is supposed to make us feel liberated, it can feel exhausting instead. And I, I wonder if you've felt that before, the, the kind of the overwhelming amount of choice that we have. And there's actually a name for, for kind of the paralysis that often comes when we're trying to decide between so many different possible options, and it's called the fear of better options. So maybe you've heard of this idea of, of FOMO, fear of missing out. This is FOBO, fear of better options, fear of better options. And the difference between these two is, is fear of better options is like fear of missing out's reclusive next door neighbor. So fear of missing out's never home, fear of missing out's always going. They're super exhausted because they're trying to do everything. They're, they're never at home. While fear of better options is always stuck at home uh, because they can't make a decision on anything. They're always waiting, like, I don't want to commit to, to going out with that group of friends because I'm waiting for this other friend to text back. I'm hoping that these people will invite me. And so you end up not doing anything. They're exhausted from the work of constantly trying to decide between all the different options that are there. And the reality is, is that fear of better options also, over time, it begins to sabotage relationships. Because you end up saying, well, I won't go and hang out with those people because I, I might get a better offer. Or I won't commit to this 
this girlfriend or boyfriend or this relationship because what if someone else better comes along? How can I know if this is the right person? Or I won't say yes to this job offer because it's good, but I'm also waiting to hear back from this other company that might be better, and even though the deadline's here, I, I'm going to hold out to see if this other option is better. And again, this fear of better options is, is crippling to a full life. Relationships suffer. And also, also if, if you kind of allow that to, to sink into your soul, it also causes your spiritual life to suffer too because at the heart of Christian spirituality is a relationship. It's a relationship with the God of the universe who made you, who wants to know you, who wants to rescue you. And the risk of saying yes to Jesus, but sort of with an asterisk, meaning as only as long as nothing else better comes along, is it puts you in a place of never actually experiencing a real relationship with him. And in fact, over time, sort of partially committing to him will leave you in a place of becoming desensitized to his call and his claims. Now, you may be here today and you find yourself, you're deeply wrestling with your faith. And maybe that's uh, because, you know, you grew up in the context of the local church and you've seen some of the ugliness of that at times and, and you have questions not just about maybe some Christian beliefs, but also questions about the institution of the church and, and, and can it be trusted. Uh, others of you may be here and you have wrestling with faith because you're at a place of just kind of considering all this for the first time. Maybe you friend or a family member has invited you to come along, and you're, you're not at all sure what you think of any of this right now. Uh, for others of you, you actually had a, a deep relationship with Jesus um, for some time, but it's begin, beginning to be dull. It, it's not what it used to be. Or, or maybe you're here, actually, and you're like, Bill, I, that, none of those say, I'm so excited to be here. I, God is working in my life in fresh ways, maybe in ways that he never has before, and I, I just came here so excited to learn what are the next steps, how can I go deeper, and I just want to say wherever you find yourself this morning on, on that wide spectrum, I just want to tell you that there will be moments when you will be tempted, when it will be appealing to say no to Jesus, and John's message to us in John chapter 12 here this morning is simply don't say no to Jesus. Don't say no to Jesus. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 12. Um, grab one of your pew Bibles, or you can pull it up on, on one of your internet Bible app. In fact, I, I mentioned this too in first service. If you use the YouVersion Bible app, which is a great one, you, lots of different translations, and I, we'll have to do a video on this or something, but you can actually navigate. If you go to events and you search for Christ Community Brookside, you can actually find the whole sermon outline and the quotes and all that kind of stuff. If you ever, oh, I wanted to write down a quote that was on the screen. It's actually all in that YouVersion Bible app, if you can find the right spot. But however you want to look at that, I encourage you to go to John chapter 12 and look at this with me. We're in this series that we're calling Behold Your King in the Gospel of John, and we just started it, but we're in the middle of the Gospel because we actually taught through the first part of the Gospel of John last year, and now we're, we're coming back to it. We're picking it up, and this series will take us all the way through Easter, basically. We'll be looking at at John and the story that he is telling. And at this point in his gospel, John is showing us that a lot of people are saying no to Jesus. In fact, we're getting to the point in the narrative, in the story, where so many people are saying no to Jesus that eventually he's going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. We're at that hinge point in the gospel. And so John, in this moment, wants us to see 
these people who are saying no to Jesus and saying to us as readers, don't be one of those, for one. And two, I think he's also trying to shed light on why is it that people say no to Jesus so that we don't make the same mistake. So as we look at this, what we see is one of the first things we see here is that don't say no to Jesus even though his signs are confounding. I'll explain why I picked that very specific word in just a moment. Don't say no to Jesus even when his signs are confounding. And you see this down in verse 37. Uh, Just a few verses earlier in the chapter, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, and actually there's a voice from heaven that comes and audibly speaks and affirms who Jesus is and his identity. That happens a couple times in the Gospels. Once when he's baptized, another time he's up on a mountain, this moment called the transfiguration. But here's another moment where there's an audible voice of God speaking from the heavens, declaring who Jesus is, and yet, people are still walking away from him. And then Jesus, uh, John writes this in, in, about Jesus in John chapter 30, or 12, or th- verse 37 here. He says, though he had done so many signs, so many, I love John's life, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Though Jesus had done all of these signs, he had done so many different signs in front of these crowds of people, they still didn't believe in him. And in many ways, John has organized this first half of his gospel, these first 11 chapters, around these various signs that Jesus was doing. This is specific language to John, uh, kind of using this language of signs. And these signs, not only do they surprise people, but they confound people. And to confound, this is why I'm picking this word, is to do something surprising that's contrary to expectation. It's doing something that's surprising and it's contrary to what others would expect. So, for example, say you are someone who doesn't like sushi. I happen to be someone who loves sushi. Um, I think it's delicious, but I know there's a lot of people out there not big fans of sushi. So let's say you've been on record as I don't like sushi. If we're ever going out to lunch, I don't want to go to get sushi. I'm not a sushi person. And then tomorrow, or if you have tomorrow off for the holiday, if you, Tuesday you're in the office, if you still go to the office, and your coworkers say, hey, where do you want to go to lunch today? Like, let's go to, to Blue Sushi and let's get some spicy tuna rolls. Not only would that group of people be surprised, they'd be confounded because it's contrary to what they expect you to say, that you've been on record for a long time saying, I don't like sushi. They aren't just surprised, they're confounded. And, and that's what Jesus' signs do in the Gospel of John. They don't just surprise, they confound. This is exactly what Jesus shows us. He's revealing who he is, but he does not conform to the expectations that people had about him in these signs. And so here are some of the signs that John lists that Jesus did. So first of all, John's first sign in the gospel is he turns water into wine at a wedding. One, it's not a very public sign, but two, it's a surprising thing. Jesus' first kind of recorded sign in the gospel of John is making more alcohol so the wedding can go on and the celebration and the bride and groom don't lose face. It sort of becomes this picture of the abundance that the Messiah has to bring, but no one expected that. Uh, the second sign, then, that he does in the Gospel of John is he clears the temple. He, it's called the cleanse of the temples, but he clears out the Jewish people in the temple who were selling and trading. And this is, again, surprising because the expectation of the Messiah is that he's going to come and clear the Romans out of Jerusalem, not bother with Jews who are selling and trading in the temple. Jesus, what are you, why are you doing this? 
if you're going to be dramatic and, and cast some people out, why don't you cast the Romans out? Uh, and then he heals the official's son. Now, we don't know for sure, but the language of the official, it could, he could have been a Jewish official, but most likely this is either a Roman official or a Herodian, someone who's on the outgroup of the Jewish establishment. And then he heals a paralytic. And he heals this guy on the Sabbath. Now, again, maybe for us today, is like, well, he healed him on a Sunday, that's whatever. But healing was considered work. Actually, the Sabbath's on a Saturday anyway. But he heals this guy on the Sabbath on a Saturday. Healing was considered work. And if you work in the healthcare profession, you know, like doing the work of healing, nurse, doctor, like that's work, right? And, and it's kind of like Jesus, he's been paralyzed for a long time. You could come back the next day, heal him then. Why are you doing this now? And, and again, why is this such a big deal? Because in this moment for the Jewish people at this time, where they are under the occupation of Rome, the main kind of things that kept their identity as a people were keeping the Sabbath, practicing circumcision, and keeping the kosher laws. This was like a core part of, of what it meant. And so when Jesus goes and heals on the Sabbath, he's breaking one of these core Ten Commandments, these core identity markers, and people are outraged. And then he's got the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the miracle itself is welcome, but the teaching that Jesus gives after when people come back the next day wanting more food really starts to shock people and put them off. Jesus says, I'm the true bread of heaven who's come down, and actually, if you want a part with me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And sort of like people at that moment are like, Jesus, great, as long as you're handing out free Chick-fil-A, that's awesome. But this is starting to get really weird, and they walk away. In fact, John tells us that it's this moment when a massive amount of people stop following Jesus. So much so that Jesus even looks at his own sort of 12 followers, his, his closest disciples, and says to them, are you going to leave too? To which Peter responds, well, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But a bunch of people start walking away from saying no to Jesus at that point. And then he heals the man who's born blind, again, on the Sabbath, with kind of the similar results. And then we get to Lazarus, who died, and Jesus brings him back to life. And the Jewish leaders at that point are saying, this guy's getting way too much attention. And we have to kill him. We have to take him out. Amazing signs that really ticks people off. This is Jesus's calling card, signs that confound but John goes on to tell us in verses 38 through 40 that this rejection of Jesus doesn't come as a surprise. I think he inserts this at this point in the gospel because he wants us to know that you would expect that Jesus' own people would welcome him, but they don't. In fact, all the way back in John chapter 1, he says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. This fits into this pattern, and I think John's explaining why are there so many people from Jesus' own ethnic group, the Israelites, the Jewish people who reject him. Why is this? And it says, in fact, it's, it's part of God's plan, is what John explains to us here. He quotes from Isaiah, and this is one of those passages. He quotes a couple of passages from Isaiah that are, are tough texts to understand. We're not going to have time to unpack it all today, but I want to read these verses to you and just show you, I think, how they're working in John's gospel. So he says this, he says, this was to fulfill, this rejection of Jesus by these people, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the idea of his strength, his power. 
And then John goes on to say, this is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. And here's the deal. As hard as those verses are, the reality is that human beings have had a history of rejecting God for a really long time. All the way back to the garden that's in Eden, human beings have been rejecting God and his goodness and his wisdom. Now, if that's true in general, it's especially true specifically for God's chosen people, the Israelites. Because when you read through the story of the Old Testament, from Exodus on, from Abraham in Genesis, and Isaac and Jacob and Exodus and God's people, they are constantly turning against God, rejecting his ways, rejecting his work. That's the context in which Isaiah is originally writing these words as he's predicting the fact that they are going to go into exile. There's a long history of God's people rejecting him. And John is saying that the crowd's response to Jesus fits into that pattern, but Jesus is sovereign over it, and he will actually bring good out of it. God's blinding and hardening of the hearts actually bring about the death of Jesus, which opens up life to all who would believe in him. Not even unbelief can stop God's plan, but actually can even be a means by which he brings about his plan. And we actually then know from the book of Acts that many of the people who rejected Jesus in this moment, if you read Acts chapter 2, later after Jesus is resurrected and they hear the gospel and the Spirit has come, they actually come in faith to trust Jesus. But in this moment of salvation history, right now Jesus, part of God's plan for this group of people is that they reject him and bring about his death. But see, not even unbelief is out of his control and he can even bring good out of it. And the evidence that John offers for this is that even though the crowds and religious establishment are largely rejecting him, there are many who still did believe in him. Uh, but there's a but along with that. And that brings us to our next point here, which is don't say no to Jesus even when being accepted by Jesus means being rejected by others. Even when acceptance from him means rejection from others. And you see this in verse 42, where John is saying that even though lots of people are rejecting him, verse 42, nevertheless, many did believe in him even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. They weren't public with their belief, so they would not be banned from the synagogue. Now what John writes next in verse 43, I think is one of the most sobering passages in the New Testament. Now don't look at it yet. They may be some of the scariest words in the Bible. I actually have written next to them in my own Bible that I read from the regular basis, just God help me next to this. And they're simply this, verse 43. Why? For they loved human praise more than praise from God. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. And friends, I'm just telling you that at some point in your journey, you will want to say no to Jesus. Why? Because receiving his welcome, committing to him, receiving his forgiveness and his acceptance will mean that there are other people who will reject you because of that. And, and for these religious rulers, again, 
lest we're too hard on them. There's a lot at stake. Being kicked out of the synagogue wasn't just like, oh, I've got to go find a, a new health club to work out of or something like that. These guys don't like me anymore. And this is, this is being sort of excluded from all of the political and social life that they had. Total ostracization, totally being cut off. That was everything. And the cultural context where we inhabit, which is often responds to people that we don't like with kind of a cancel culture mentality, maintaining allegiance to Jesus can bring rejection. It can be interpreted as bigotry or worse at times. And I think that will increasingly be tested. Will we be aligned with Jesus and his praise and his acceptance? Will we prize human praise more. But I suspect for most of us it won't be big public moments that are the most difficult with that. We have to take some kind of dramatic stand. For some of us, maybe. But I think for many of us it's going to be smaller, much less dramatic, but no less weighty moments. Moments when you're hanging out with friends or colleagues, at least I know this is the case for me, and we would rather that they think us cool or progressive or with it or just normal, maybe, then admit or acknowledge the reality that we trust a crucified and risen Jew to define everything about our story. And, and again, I know this isn't easy, and, and I'm not saying that you should run around and make sure in every single conversation you have with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend that at some point in the conversation you, you make a point to say, and you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, right, we have to be winsome and thoughtful and tactful, all of it, right? But I think there are moments when sometimes there's just no way around it. Our allegiance to Jesus may mean that others will reject us. And in that moment, will we value his acceptance, his welcome, his praise? Literally, the word is glory. The glory of God more than the glory of people. Don't say no to Jesus, even when his signs confound. Even when his acceptance means rejection by others. And, and here's another. Don't say no to Jesus, even when he offends, even when his claims about himself are offensive. And John places this uh, in the final verses of this passage today, in the ending of John chapter 12. And these verses at the end of John chapter 12 are actually the final sort of public address that Jesus gives in this gospel. So in the coming weeks, we're going to look at a lot of Jesus' words that John has recorded, but they're part of what's known as the, the upper room discourse. It's, it's, a, it's a teaching to Jesus' closest disciples, but the final verses of John chapter 12 are the last verses that Jesus kind of speaks publicly to the crowds before his death. A summary of all that he's done, a summary of his message from the beginning. This is verse 44, John chapter 12. And you even see how it begins. And Jesus cried out, it's not even just the, the, how loudly he spoke, but the broadness of this proclamation. This is for everyone. Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, if you've been going to church for a long time, you may hear those verses read and think, uh, Bill, that doesn't seem particularly offensive to me. Because we're, we're just kind of used to reading Jesus' words. We're kind of familiar with the, the sound of the Gospels. You may not think, wow, I'm super offended right now. But you should be. 
Because remember with me, to Jesus' Jewish listeners at this time, and, and even today, this is the most kind of heinous, offensive thing you could do, is to make yourself equal with God, to say that I am with God. To look at me is to see God. And to do that was to incur death upon yourself. And so here Jesus comes talking about himself, saying, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me, meaning God who sent him. And, and you could say, okay, maybe a prophet might say that. If you, you see me, you've actually, you know, if you believe in me, you're actually truly believing in the one who sent me, you're not believing in me. I, I, I can get on board with that. And, and then you say, okay, maybe I says I'm the light of the world. Again, you might be able to say, well, maybe a unique teacher would say, I'm, I'm uniquely shedding light on the truth. But then in verse 45, when Jesus says, if you see me, you see God, that's where people say, no, Jesus, no way. You are a human being, and you are making yourself equal to God. And it's hard to blame them for that reaction. Again, we are so used to, 2,000 years later, as followers of Jesus, understanding this, this incredible mystery that, that he's both truly God and truly and fully human. But no one else in the history of religion has claimed something like that, right? Even the most important religious figures, Muhammad, Moses, Siddhartha, Confucius, Buddha, all of these, to varying degrees might claim to speak for the divine or the ultimate, to, to be truth tellers, to have some sort of exclusive knowledge about the way one should live their life or the purpose of human existence. But none of them, none of them said, if you want to see me, or if you want to see God, look at me. If you see me, you've seen God that I am equal to the one who made all of this. Jesus' claim to divinity is one of the most decisive things about him, one of the most divisive things about him. And John is warning us here, don't say no to Jesus, even if his claims, even if his claims are offensive. And I do think offensive is the right word there because they, they do offend. They put us off. They, they don't make sense at first. They challenge us to our very core. It's offensive that Jesus could claim this identity and authority over every person, everywhere, at all times. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I have the right to define existence. And I actually have the right to be the king, the authority over every single person who's ever lived, anytime, place. He will say uh, later in verse 48 that his word will judge us, that he has the last word over our lives. And that's offensive. And Jesus meant it to be. Because the offense, it pushes us beyond the shallow approach which most of us come to him in the first place. I think most of us approach Jesus with kind of the posture of, do we like him or not? Which parts of Jesus do I resonate with or not? And it's easy to say things like, I really like Jesus' teaching here, but I don't know if I agree with him so much over here. Or to say, Jesus is a great moral example. He shows us what, what sacrificial love looks like. He shows us what it is to love one another. But Jesus' offense will not allow us to get away with that. He makes claims that are too bold to simply say, oh, he's a good teacher. Oh, he's, he's a great example of love and sacrifice. Whether we do or do not like him is, is not the most, in question, most important question for him. In fact, there are things that Jesus will say that will make us decidedly not like him, at least at first. For Jesus, the most important question is not, do I like him or not? But is he right? Is he true? Is what he says about himself the truth? That's the question we have to answer. So finally, don't say no to Jesus because he came for you. 
Don't say no to Jesus because he came for you. He came to rescue you. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the heart of his mission is to save the world, not to condemn it. But if we reject him, if we, if we do not accept his offer of rescue, it is that very offer of rescue that will judge us in the end. The only thing that can condemn you is your rejection of Jesus' offer of no condemnation. That's what he's saying here. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. But if you reject that offer, is that very offer of salvation, those very words of, of welcome that you rejected that will condemn you. Think about it like, like this. Say you have a fatal disease and you go in to see a doctor and she writes you a life-saving prescription on this piece of paper and says, take this to the pharmacy, fill this drug, and it will, it will save your life. I mean, she's, she's come not to condemn you, but to, to give you an offer of rescue from this disease. But if you refuse to fill that prescription, if you refuse to take that medicine, she's not condemning you to death. If you die, it's actually that very prescription that she wrote, that life-giving prescription that will both declare an opportunity that you had for life, but as well as the reason that you died, this failure to, to act on this. And this is Jesus' point. I, I'm not coming here to condemn. I'm not coming here to judge. But if you reject my offer, it's that, that very offer of life that in the end will say you didn't want this. Jesus came to save and to say no to him is more than just stupid or stubborn. It's eternal. It's permanent. It's everything. And Jesus have every, has every right, if he is who he says he is, to be offended by our lack of trust in him, to be frustrated and disappointed for us not living into his design for life. And he has every right to demand our lives because he's the one who gave them to us in the first place. But he doesn't come to judge. He didn't come here to rub it in your face. He did not arrive to take on flesh and live his life to condemn the world. He did all that to save the world. In the end, Jesus did not come to judge, to condemn, to shun, to shame, to lecture, to argue. He came to save. So say yes to Jesus. Believe what the signs recorded in the Gospel of John reveal about him. Desire his approval, his acceptance, his welcome, his forgiveness more than the glory that comes from other humans. Embrace the things that are the most offensive about him. Because think about it like this, friends, the story of Beauty and the Beast. I think when you watch that movie, whether it's the animated one or the, the live action one, I think we want to sort of naturally identify with, with Belle, with the heroine, the beauty who comes and sort of sacrifices herself and, and redeems this, this beast and fulfills the, the, the promise. But the reality is that if, if we're like anyone in the story, it's, it's not Belle. We're the, we're, we all have these beastly hearts, don't we? That judge by external appearances, that condemn, that are self-righteous, that are selfish, that are sulking, that are angry. 
And, and just like Beauty and the Beast, our natural disposition is to actually mistreat and imprison the very one who came to rescue us. Because remember in the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? When Belle first shows up at the castle, he locks her away. The very one who has the, like, the only opportunity of, of redeeming him from this curse. His first instinct is to lock her away. I just want to say that is the first instinct of all of our hearts when it comes to Jesus' rescue and offer of salvation. Our first impulse is to want to push that away, but say yes to Jesus. Don't push him away. And the good news of the gospel is this. You know, in the story of, of Beauty and the Beast, and the Beast eventually decides, like, I do have to win this person over, and I've got to clean myself up, and dress in nice clothes and bathe and all this, and, and then maybe I can convince her to fall in love with me. But friends, the good news of the gospel is even when you were at your beastliest, you didn't have to convince Jesus to love you. You didn't have to convince Jesus to give his life for you. He sees your beastly heart more clearly than you do. And he loved you first, and he gave his life for you first. So don't say no to him. Say yes to them. You will not get a better offer. If you're holding out, worry, fearful that a better offer will come along, it will not. So say yes to him now and always. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the fact that you have sent Jesus even long before we ever wanted you, even when our hearts were hardened and we were blind and we wanted to reject you, that you came and overcame that, have called us to yourself. Pray that you would bring new life. You'd help us to follow you, to trust you, to not say no to you. Jesus name. Amen.